0: So I wanted to give a little update on New Covenant Church. Uh, my family wasn't here last week. It's going to be back with you. But we went up to Denver uh, to visit New Covenant Church. That's uh, our new church plant. They're meeting for their third Sunday uh, this last week, or um, this morning is their third Sunday. And so it was fun to go up there and be with them. Uh, and I just want to let you know how it's going. They sent their greetings, uh, their love. They really miss you guys. They really miss this church. Um, and they feel really tangibly like the, the absence, the loss of community that they've taken on in order to go. Uh, but that's a real blessing that they're willing to do it. Christ is honoring them in it. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing that's happening up there. So I got to go on Saturday around with John and just kind of see what some of his uh, work throughout the week looks like. So John and I went evangelizing. We had to get into some good godly trouble. We got kicked out of the mall uh, for evangelizing. So that's a classic situation. Um, But it was great. We got to evangelize a couple people before they kicked us out. And then the security guard that was kicking us out, we evangelized her on our way out too, which is good. so that was fun. Then we got—I get to go, and uh, they had some music practice. So I got to go to music practice, and it's just—I mean—it reminds me of the days, the early days of church planting, because John's like printing out the songs, um, printing them, hole punching them, putting them in binders, gathering them, practicing the songs, going, and then you know, uh, on Sunday morning he's going and he's setting up chairs and he's making coffee and he's carrying in totes full of stuff and he's setting up the communion table and they're pouring the stuff and they're making the bread. And then he's leading through the service and he's doing the music and he's preaching and he's leading communion and it's just uh, (laughs) wonderful. And uh, it's so much uh, that he is bitten off here. And we were really glad to see uh, the burgers there. It's a a treat to have the burgers back with us uh, for a Sunday this morning. But the burgers being there is just a huge blessing, jumping in and helping and serving. Jarrett is up there uh, jumping in and serving with all that. So it really felt like home also. I mean, their worship service looks a lot like ours. They've kind of made it their own a little bit in different ways, which is fun, but it really felt like home, right? The burgers were there, the Halvoids were there, Jarrett was there, and then a few others we didn't know. Um, But it was just wonderful. The worship was a blessing. It was great to see them. And they miss you guys and they send their love and uh, if you can go and see them, please do. Like, even if just, like if you could plan a trip to go worship with them on a Sunday morning, it would be a huge blessing to them. But if you find yourself in Denver, uh, really try to plan around it. Because when you're a small church plant, um, every person there helps, right? And you, you know, so, I mean, it's possible this Sunday, it's the halvoitz Jarrett, and Turner and Chrissy. And so imagine what happens when you're there and there's like three groups of you and then a whole family shows up, right? You're like, yes. <laughs> you just double in size and it just encourages you. So if you have opportunity, uh, we encourage you to go and say hi to them and see them and encourage them and worship with them. And uh, it's a real blessing. All right. Um, but it's, uh, I'm happy to be here, I'm happy to be back here. I'm happy to be not at that stage of church planting anymore. I remember it well. It's exhausting, um, but it's wonderful. And you see the Lord work in so many uh, wonderful ways. So we praise God for that. Uh, so keep praying for them. And, uh, they're, but they're doing great. Like I highlight some of the exhausting nature of it and kind of like try to talk about how much they're doing. But uh, they're just thriving. We asked them, how are you guys doing? Are you exhausted? They're like, we're tired, but we are like thriving in the Lord. And they really are. And so that's a blessing. Um, We watched the Super Bowl while we were up there, but we won't talk about that. Uh, Open your Bibles to Leviticus this morning. Uh, We're going to begin a sermon series through the book of Leviticus. As we do that, actually open your Bibles to Leviticus and then go back one page to the end of Exodus, because in order to understand Leviticus, we need to pick up where we left off because uh, we do have a goal. Uh, We're... uh, I have a goal of preaching through the entire Pentateuch. We've preached through Genesis, and we've preached through Exodus, and then, you know, we've had breaks in between, and now uh, we have arrived at Leviticus, which is somewhat intimidating and daunting um, and really exciting. So um, we'll catch up a little bit this morning, and uh, I understand last week you guys did the entire Old Testament, so this will be easy for you. But... um, the sermon this morning is called Introducing Leviticus, Drawing Near to the Holy God. So as you turn to Leviticus and the end of Exodus, I'm to read you a line from a psalm, Psalm seventy-three, twenty-eight. But for me, it is good to be near God, or from the New American Standard, which for some reason is how I have memorized this line. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. Is the nearness of God your good? Is it your driving desire to be near to God, to draw near to him, to have fellowship with the living God? Do you have driving desires about your good? Do you have a sense of what's good for you? What will make it all okay? Like imagine you're having a bad day, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, everything's going wrong. Maybe you think if I could just go and be with this person, things would get better. Or maybe you think if I could just have a glass of wine at the end of the day, or if I could just get some chocolate, or another cup of coffee will get me through, or if I can just make it to lunch, it's gonna be okay, then it will be good. If I can just make it to the weekend, just get this week behind me, if I can just get to the weekend, if I can just rest for a minute, it will be good. I've got a vacation coming up. If I can just make it to the vacation, I know it's bad and hard, but if I can just make it to that, then everything will be good. And I think these are fine and lawful things to enjoy, and the Lord gives us things that bring us rest, but ultimately, It is the case for you that if you can just get near God, everything will be okay. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Do you see that? Do you know that and do you live accordingly that what you really need to turn things around, like no matter how bad things are, no matter how much the struggle, you're right in the middle of it, It's the nearness of God that will fix it. It's the nearness of God that you need most fundamentally and most deeply. And so do you draw near to God knowing that he promises if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you? This is the main thing. This is your good. Your greatest good is the nearness of God. The Psalm 27 says it a little bit differently. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. What's the one united desire of the heart of the psalmist? One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his The main desire, the main thing is to get into the house of God and to dwell there always, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, to ask him for what you need. The nearness of God is my good. Now, if the nearness of God, the presence of God doesn't interest you personally, you will find it hard to care about the book of Leviticus. If you're not that interested in nearness to God, then you will find it obtuse and strange. But if you know this to be true, that the nearness of God is your greatest good, then there are glories in the book of Leviticus that will surprise you and delight you. Because I believe this is what the whole book of Leviticus is about how people draw near to a holy God, because God is the source of all life and joy. As it's written in his presence, there is fullness of joy. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good as the Bible invites you to do? If you haven't, if you're here and you're hearing me and you're hearing me talk about this, the nearness of God being your highest good and you think, Honestly, like, that's just not me. Like, I live for something less than that. Keep asking and seeking and knocking until you find the nearness of God to be the sweetest thing in your existence. Don't give up. If you search for the Lord diligently, you will find him. Because I'm telling you, you were created to have fellowship with God. And nothing else will do. Nothing else will ultimately satisfy you. And that's the theme of Leviticus, how a sinful people can draw near to a holy God. And there are wonderful answers and glorious provisions from God for Israel to be near to him. And there's wonders here in Leviticus for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's instruction and principles about how we draw near to God even though we don't draw near in the exact same way that Israel did under the old covenant, there is instruction and truth for us about what it looks like to draw near to God. And there's glorious encouragement about what God has done to bring us to himself in Christ Jesus by contrast as we look at Leviticus. There's instruction for us about how we draw near and there's also contrast about how we don't have to draw near in that old way anymore And that reminds us of the glorious access that we have to God now. And by God's grace, this overlooked book, Leviticus, this often neglected book, this often complained-about book, this book that's sometimes an occasion to bog down in your resolute goal to read Bible cover to cover, and how many good efforts have bogged down and died in the book of Leviticus and trying to make it all the way through, cover to cover this time. This often forgotten book, by God's grace, this book will be a place where we behold our God and his goodness and are drawn into deeper fellowship with him because this book is written by God and it's for your good and it's filled with treasures. So what's our approach? How do we work our way through Levit- Leviticus? This book, and part of the reason I think why people often bog down in Leviticus is because this book reads somewhat uniquely. It reads differently than other books. A lot of the books we have in the New Testament are epistles. They're short letters packed with lots of of ideas that are boiled down and distilled. Whereas Leviticus has lots of repetition. It'll say kind of the same thing over and over again in a different way. And this type of sacrifice, and they did this with the sacrifice, and they brought it to the Lord, and they did this. And then this type of sacrifice, and they brought it to the Lord, and they did this. And then this type of sacrifice, and there's lots of repetition, and that's there on purpose. And there's lots of detail isn't there? Have you read Leviticus? Lots of intricate detail about the nuances of bringing the sacrifices and how they would be offered. And some of it's hard to understand. And often it's hard to understand the significance of it because it'll say like, put some of the blood on your thumb and put some of the blood on your earlobe and on your right toe. And then it just like moves on. And you're like, but why? All right. And it just doesn't explain. Just, just do it. Okay? And that's by God's design. So, How are we going to approach this? The plan is to read through every verse together. We will read through all of Leviticus, chunk at a time, and we will look at every section covering the content of every verse, but we will work through Leviticus differently than we would, say, Romans. We'll take sections at a time. Likely at times, we'll cover, we we may at times cover multiple chapters in a section. We will see. But when it repeats itself a lot, we're not gonna like try to, dig down into every instance of repetition. We will look at those repetitions, we will notice the differences, and we will see what's being told to us through those repetitions. It's like reading old poems. Have you ever read an old epic poem, like the Fairy Queen, Paradise Lost? If you try to read those like you would a modern day poem that's you know, 10 or 20 lines packed with meaning, and you try to really suck the nectar out of every line and every word, you'll never make it. You'll never make it through paradise lost like that. You just have to power through it. You just have to read and read fast and let it wash over you as you get the kind of big picture. Okay? And that's how Leviticus works. Okay? The repetition isn't meant to be just drilled into and an, an, an obsessed over. You let it have its cumulative effect over you. And so that's how we'll work our way through the book of Leviticus, noticing every single verse, every single detail, but taking it in and letting it wash over us as we read repetitive things. And where we don't know what something means, we'll just acknowledge that we don't know what it means and move on. Why did they put the the blood on their thumb and their earlobe and their big toe? We'll venture our best guess, but we don't always know because it doesn't always explain itself. And that's okay. We'll just notice what it tells us and we'll move on. All right. So we've said that Leviticus is part of God's narrative of redemption. And so we need to start off by thinking about how it fits into its historical and literary context. So that's what Leviticus is. Those are big themes of Leviticus. That's how we're going to approach Leviticus. And now let's set Leviticus in its context this morning. Leviticus is part of the Pentateuch. What does Pentateuch mean? Five. It means five books. Five books. What could that be referring to? The first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible. They're called the Pentateuch. Sometimes they're called the Law, the Torah, or the Instruction. Okay? That's the Pentateuch. And Leviticus is right in the middle of the Pentateuch, right in the middle of the Law, of these first five books. And in some ways, the themes of Leviticus are central to the Pentateuch. In some ways, the themes of worship to God under the law is spelled out most fully and directly in the book of Leviticus as they show Israel the way to fellowship with God in his house. Leviticus was written by Moses. How do we know that Leviticus was written by Moses? Because it says. For example, look at Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... And then it launches into the instruction of the book. So this is stuff that God told to Moses. Also, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, attributes Leviticus to Moses. In Romans 10.5, Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. And that seems to be a quotation of Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, I go into that. Maybe you think, obviously, it's Moses. And why take the time? Well, because today, biblical scholars love to try to debunk everything, right? Now Moses Now we know from our lofty perch, here 2,000 years later. We know better than the text itself says. We know better than the New Testament authors. We know better than 2,000 years of church history. And we now know that this wasn't written by Moses, but was actually compiled by a lot of different authors over time. And so we break it up into different, and we can know, because they use different terminology over here and different terminology over there. And so there's a, a constant attempt to kind of undermine just the straightforward reality of who wrote the books of the Bible, but it's plain and clear that Moses wrote the book of Leviticus. All right. Now, as part of the Pentateuch, Leviticus is carrying on the themes of the Pentateuch and developing them. So we need to notice what's going on in Genesis and Exodus that then is getting picked up and developed in the book of Leviticus. So let's take a few minutes to think about the main through line of Genesis and Exodus. What's the main point? of Genesis and Exodus so far. There are always different themes you can look at. You can ask yourself about a specific theme and then trace it through the Bible. So you could ask yourself, what does the Bible say about food? And you could find that it starts talking about it right in Genesis chapter one. And you can follow that theme all the way through the Bible and see what the Bible says about it. And it's hard to pick the one theme of all the Bible other than maybe Jesus, okay? That's kind of the main theme of the whole Bible. But if we wanna to try to get our, our heads around the major, some of the major themes that are being developed in Leviticus and how those come through Genesis and Exodus, I think the idea is something about how sinful people can be near to a holy God. And that becomes a central theme of Genesis and Exodus as we look at it too. So we see this in creation. How can a sinful people be in the presence of God? In creation, God creates mankind and he blesses them and he walks with them in the garden in the cool of the day, in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. God was with his people; he was near to them. Remember, we talked about the nearness of God. They had fellowship with God in Eden. He created mankind in his image to fellowship with him. Uh, this guy, L. Michael Morales, who wrote an excellent commentary on Leviticus that I'm learning tons of uh, from, and so just. Credit where credit's due. A lot of my thoughts are being shaped by this, this book. Um, but this guy makes this point about Genesis. Um, the book is called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, if you want to read that as we go through. Um, but he says this, Humanity, nevertheless, is not the culmination of creation. That's somewhat shocking, right? We think about the, six, the seven days of creation, the six days of creation, and it builds and it culminates in the creation of mankind. And that's kind of a theological truism, that mankind is the crown of creation. But he makes an interesting point. He says, humanity, nevertheless, is not the culmination of creation, but rather humanity in Sabbath day communion with God. This engagement with the divine is what and what alone can fulfill the purpose and potential for the image of God, not merely as keeper of the lower creation, but as lover of the fathomless uncreated. So he says, look, yes, creation culminates in the creation of mankind on day six, but there's a day seven. And what happens on day seven? Mankind enters into the Sabbath rest of God and enters into fellowship with God. So he says, yes, in a sense, it's the creation of mankind in the image of God, but then in fellowship with his creator, which I think is a delightful point. And so you see the theme here of fellowship with God all the way back from the beginning. And you know that that fellowship with God didn't last because Adam and Eve rebelled against God right away and their sin broke fellowship with God. Life under God's blessing became death under God's curse because of Adam and Eve's sin. God's drawing near shifted from a drawing near to bring blessing to a drawing near to bring the curse of judgment. And that is very bad news for all mankind who were all brought into this unhappy relationship with God through the sin of Adam and Eve. All of our fellowship with God was affected when Adam and Eve fell. And if the nearness of God is our greatest good, then what is the losing of the nearness of God? But God abounds with grace and mercy. And so he promised Abraham to restore the relationship to one of blessing again through the offspring of Abraham to all the peoples of the earth. God would raise up an offspring of Abraham, and through him he would bless all the peoples of the earth. And so we see God beginning this initial working out of these promises in Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, as he makes them into a great nation. We had fellowship with God. We forfeited and lost it. He promised to restore it through his descend- the descendants of Abraham, through the nation of Israel, and he begins to make them into a great nation who knows God. But in the book of Exodus, this people of God struggle under the thumb of Egypt, and God delivers them by his mighty hand, And promises to bring them to a land that he has prepared for them, where they will live under his blessing. Where he will begin to store the relationship between him and his people. So he brings them out of Egypt, through the waters of the sea, and up the mountain of Sinai, where he meets with them. And he gives them the law, telling them that he will bless them when they keep his law, when they walk in his commandments. And part of that law involved building a tabernacle for God. Do you remember this in Exodus? All the detail of the building of the tabernacle with all of its curtains and all of its furnishings and all of its construction, a tent of meeting, he calls it, so that he could come and live in the midst of his people, so that he could meet with his people. He taught them to build a tent, a tent of meeting, where man would meet with God, so that they could have the nearness of God restored to them, So God told Moses in Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The purpose of these elaborate instructions for building the tabernacle was so that God could come and live among them. He reiterates it again in Exodus 29, 45 to 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See how central this dwelling with God is, this fellowship with God, the nearness of God to his people. But then Exodus ends with a surprising turn of events that sets up the theme of Leviticus. So God brings them out, makes him into a great people. He shows them how to build a house so that they can meet with him again, so he can restore fellowship. They build the tabernacle. Everything's ready. They do all the stuff that he says. Moses finishes the work so they could meet with God. And then what happens? Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the cloud represents God's presence. God comes, they build the tent of meeting, they build the house for him to come. His glory comes and he fills the house so that they can meet together, right? Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God teaches them to build the house, the tent of meeting, so that he could dwell with them. They build it. He fills it. And because he fills it, Moses can't go in. Something's wrong. Something else is needed if God's people are going to be able to meet with their holy God. And that sets up the purpose of the book of Leviticus. Laws and instruction on how a sinful people can draw near to meet with the holy God. So, Exodus ending the way it did, with God's people unable to actually go in and meet with God closely. They've got to stay outside the tent. They can talk to him, you know, in the tent, kind of, but that's really not the kind of fellowship you want, is it? If you've been longing to be reunited and restored with somebody and you get to their house, but you have to stand outside the door and you can't go in, is that really the type of fellowship you were hoping for? You can talk through the wall of the tent. That's something, and it's better than what you had before, but that's not enough. That's not all that we want, and it's not all that God wants. And so he shows them how they can draw near. He picks right up with a solution, though even this will be a provisional solution solution. You and I have far greater glories in Christ Jesus in our access to God, but in order to understand that access, we need to understand this initial solution to the problem. So let's read Leviticus 1, 1 1-2. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meetings, he's talking out of the tent, Moses is outside, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So right out of the gate, we get instruction on the offering of sacrifices. He, God explains to Moses how the people can draw near. And the centrality of this theme to Exodus is highlighted with a little explanation of the Hebrew. So bear with me while we think about the Hebrew of Leviticus 1-2 for a second. Notice that verse 2 is talking about bringing an offering. You see that? When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or the flock. Now the root of the word translated offering, which was written in Hebrew, so the Hebrew word here translated as offering, contains the idea of drawing near. That's what the word translated offering kind of literally means. It's a drawing near to kind of, and, and we translate it as offering because you draw near to offer something to God. It's the thing you draw near with. So the word for offering itself refers to drawing near. So that means this root word for offering, this root word for drawing near, occurs four times in this one verse. So you could read it like this. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings near a coming near to the Lord, you shall bring near your coming near of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Because the same root of the word for offering is the same word used to when you bring near. And so do you see how often it emphasizes and repeats this, this theme that what's going on here in Leviticus is about people drawing near to God. When you draw near to bring the drawing near, (laughs) draw near to bring the drawing near with an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This fourfold repetition of this idea of drawing near to God highlights the theme of the book of Leviticus. Drawing near to God, ascending the mountain of the Lord, meeting with God. And so we see that Leviticus immediately begins answering this problem that Exodus ended with. They build the tent, the glory fills it, and they can't go in. By explaining how offerings will enable the people to draw near. How do a sinful people draw near to the holy God by bringing sacrifice? Sacrifice will be the way by which God's people are able to approach him and dwell with him. Morella says this again, in bringing the divine presence near, the book of Leviticus itself sharpens the focus of what may be called the central theological dilemma and drama of humanity's relationship with God. Namely, the danger posed by intimacy with a consuming fire. The danger of intimacy with a consuming fire. You know that Hebrews tells you, you must worship him with reverence and awe Because your God is a consuming fire. God is so holy, so resolutely devoted to all that is good and true and pure, that by those who would draw near to him, he must be regarded as holy. Did God become less holy under the new covenant? Did God become less of a consuming fire when Christ Jesus came? No. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is the same consuming fire that we draw near to now. It's just that we have boldness and access into the consuming fire through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think that these things are often lost on us because we have such bold and confident access in Christ Jesus, we forget the raw holiness of God. We forget the inherent danger of a people drawing near to a consuming fire. And this is one of the things that Leviticus can rekindle in us, can remind us of, the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul, whom... I love, and many of us love his teachings, but he would often start his teachings by saying, people will ask me, what is the main thing that's missing in the American church today? And he would always say in his kind of infamous growling voice, it's obvious. We don't know the holiness of God. We've forgotten. We have buddy Jesus. We have the senile grandpa upstairs who just, benevolently wants us to be happy all the time. But we forget that our God is a consuming fire. But Leviticus will not let us forget. Leviticus is built around the absolute danger and inability of sinful people to approach a holy God without serious help, without bringing an offering acceptable to God. And so we see the structure of Leviticus spelling these things out in sequence. God is signaling the way back into fellowship under his blessing, the way back into the paradise of Eden through the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the law. And so let's think for a little bit about the structure of the book of Leviticus. Chapters 1 to 9 of Leviticus explain the offerings the sacrifices, and the rituals of drawing near. What kind of offerings does the Lord require? These things are fundamental to the old covenant and to the law. So once Leviticus 1 to 9 largely establishes that, what kind of offerings you bring to the Lord, then chapter 10 introduces a new problem in terms of fellowship with God. Does anybody remember what happens in Leviticus 10? Sinful priests. Anybody remember their names? Nadab and Abihu. So we learned about in in Leviticus 1 to 9, what kind of sacrifices you bring to the Lord, and then you have priests who are helping you with this. But then we have another problem, and that is the priests that help you with this themselves are not pure. And so we see this story of Nadab and Abihu bringing sacrifices to God improperly, and they're struck down dead, because they didn't regard God as holy. So that demonstrates that there's a Another problem, in addition to the right laws and the right offerings, we also need a good priest to bring those offerings to God on our behalf. And so that sets up Leviticus chapters 11 to 16, which is largely about the purification of priests. So first, 10 chapters, sacrifices that allow us to draw near to God. Leviticus 11 to 16, uh, the purification of priests because we need pure priests to bring those and to minister in God's house on our behalf. So God lays out the way for his people to draw near through the fairly complex and thorough sacrificial system. Then he goes on to teach them how to conduct themselves in his holy presence. And so that becomes the rest of Leviticus chapter 17 through the end. God's instructions about how to carefully distinguish between unclean and clean, and then to carefully distinguish between holy and profane as they learn how to dwell with God while living in corrupted flesh. So that's the basic breakdown of Leviticus. The offerings you make, the purification of the priests, and then how you live, avoiding the unclean and the impure, when God lives in your midst. That's fairly simple. We can take that one step at a time. We want to read Leviticus on its own foundation first. We simply can't do that with our eyes closed to the fact that what we're looking at is the Old Covenant. We want to let Leviticus do what Leviticus is designed to do. But we want to look at it first within its covenant context. This is the Old Covenant way for people to draw near to God. But that Old Way was quite incomplete and accommodated to humanity living in the flesh before Christ has come and poured out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. And so we'll keep that in mind as we work our way through Leviticus. This is covenant for our instruction, but it's not our covenant. It's the old covenant, which has been fulfilled in Christ. So these people knew God. They trusted him to varying degrees. They weren't indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They were not yet born again and regenerated and tasting of the powers of the age to come. And so when God lived among them, when God drew near to them, He did it not directly in their inner beings like he does with you by his Holy Spirit. He did it in a tent, an actual physical tent that was about the size of this sanctuary right here. And that tent had barriers and it had boundaries because Christ had not yet come. And all those barriers and all those boundaries that we'll look at throughout Leviticus point beyond themselves to the ultimate solution of drawing near to God that would allow us to draw near fully to the holy God, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And so that brings us to the final point this morning in introducing Leviticus, and that is that Leviticus is about Christ. Spoiler alert. So as we look at this provisional arrangement, this old covenant arrangement, to mend the problem of the distance that our sin puts between us and God, we learn invaluable lessons. We partake of so much more now, but in order to not take all that we partake of now for granted, we have to go back and see the seriousness of the necessity of atoning sacrifice for us to draw near to God. These things are assumed and built on in the teaching of the New Testament, so that for us to understand the riches of the New Testament, we need to understand the Pentateuch, and we need to understand the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. Leviticus, you might say, gives us the foundational grammar so that we can have the categories to understand the complexities of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. James Jordan says it this way. When you read Romans, Paul assumes that you know the book of Leviticus inside and out like he did. (laughs) Do you know the book of Leviticus inside and out like Paul does? (laughs) Well, we're working on that, aren't we? But the more we read, the more we understand, the more that we get these categories in our minds, then the more clearly we're going to be able to track when you go to read the book of Romans, the more its riches are going to unfold to you because you'll understand the basic grammar that he's using to explain the gospel. It is intense gospel grammar being laid out for us here in Leviticus. Because what's at the heart of all the Bible? What's at the heart of our salvation? It's the atoning death of Christ. Well, why did he need to die? Why blood, right? Well, all of that was first explained to us and laid out in the sacrificial system. And those details matter. So while the gospel far transcends the categories of the law, those categories of law are stepping stones of understanding. And if we don't understand those categories, we'll have a hard time understanding all of the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And while there are complexities and riches for us here, at the end of the day, it's also... Beautifully simple. God made us to have fellowship with him. God created you to be near to him, to find your life and joy in humble, glad obedience of faith before him. We cut ourselves off from him by our sin, by our rebellion. We brought death and hardship to all the earth, but God promised a way back into his blessing, a way to restore us to fellowship with God And you have access to God through the sacrifice of Christ right now. By grace alone, through faith alone. Not because you kept the law perfectly enough. Not because we had an earthly priest that was good enough. But because Christ is the great high priest. Because he kept all the law for us. And because he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And so now you have the fullness of fellowship with God in the Holy Spirit. And God calls everyone to repent of sin and turn to God in Christ Jesus so that we can be restored to our most fundamental good, the nearness of God. Christ brings that perfect nearness. We'll see this week in and week out as we dig into the depths of Leviticus. And because of his glorious work, knowing that God promises to meet us in his word, we actually are drawing near to him right now. How do you draw near to God in Christ Jesus. We draw near through the finished work of Christ. And where does he promise to meet us? By his Holy Spirit, in his word, in prayer, and at the table. That's what we're here doing together now. This holy God, this consuming fire, is in your midst right now by the person of Jesus. You sit now as you hear his word, as we talk to Him, as we come to His table, the sacrament of the the, the, the edible Word, the promises of God uh, demonstrated for us tangibly in the bread and the wine. As we come to these things in faith, we draw near to God, with the promise that when we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. And we long for the day when Christ finishes what He started and comes to get us to live forever with Him and the Father in paradise where the nearness of God is not mediated or distant at all, but enters into all its fullness. And so we set our hope on the nearness of God. We recommit ourselves to the nearness of God as our greatest good. We remember again that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way into that presence of God, and we enjoy it together by faith. Let's keep doing that as Tommy leads us at the Lord's table.